0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Why is it that some organizations succeed in scale while others don't? And I, I learn in my research that this funding wall is a real thing, that two thirds of nonprofits are $500,000 and below in revenue. Um, and that many of them would like to grow, but are on this treadmill, just trying to make payroll every month when they should be focusing on the problems that they're trying to solve. So I went out and I surveyed hundreds of social entrepreneurs and I sat down with 100 nonprofit leaders and their staff and their beneficiaries and their <laughs> funders, all to get to the bottom of this question of why certain organizations succeed. And I kept waiting in my conversations for people to say, oh, it's just charisma or a good idea or, you know, something like that that gets people ahead. But nobody said that. And it's not to say that charisma and passion and, you know, brilliant ideas aren't important. But what was so interesting to me about all of my research is that really it came down to this fundamental set of skills, uh, that helped organizations lay the foundation for success. So testing and innovation, measuring impact, fundraising, experimentation, and developing a funding model to help an organization grow collective leadership, uh, and storytelling. And so those are the five, those are the five strategies that I talk about in the book.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist.
0: Kathleen, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. So I was actually introduced to you by way of uh, our mutual literary agent, Lisa DeMona, who uh, had nothing but amazing things to say about you. And uh, after I got to dig into your work a little bit, I happened to agree with her assessment. So I'm really thrilled to have you here. But before we get into your work, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up? And what impact did where you grew up end up having uh, on your life and your career?
1: Mm, well, I grew up in a small town in Napa, California, which um, has become quite fancy and well-known since I grew up there. <laughs> but really, when I grew up, it was um, just a typical small town. It was a farming town where people happened to make wine. and um, and, and I grew up in a family that was very involved in the nonprofit sector. And so you would often find uh, my sisters and I tagging along with our parents volunteering on the weekends at the local soup kitchen or at the hospital. Um, And our conversations at the dinner table didn't just revolve around the people in our community that didn't have enough to eat, but my parents sat on dozens of boards. And so the conversations often revolved around, you know, did the organizations themselves have the resources that they needed? They were constantly working on, you know, supporting fundraisers or gal events to make sure that these organizations in our community were strong and could be provide the really important social services that they were providing. And so from a very young age, this was something that I knew was important. I knew both that it was our duty to give back to our communities, to be good citizens, to make this world a better place, and to leave it better than we found it. And that a really important way to do that was to support nonprofit organizations. So clearly that's been my life's work and something that really influenced me from a young age.
0: So, you know, One of the things that I'm curious about is how somebody's perspective on something like this changes with age. Because, you know, I've had a lot of guests here who are exposed to things like spiritual teachings and personal development uh, when they were kids. Because, you know, their parents were kind of hippie and new agey and into all of this sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And I had the polar opposite in terms of parents. Most of this I had to discover on my own, which I, I think I'm in the majority and people like the la- you know former are in the minority. Um, and, and the reason I brought that up is because I, I feel like there's a parallel here. And I'm curious. um how your perspective on the work that you're doing with nonprofits has changed with age? Like, did you understand uh, the implications of, of, you know, what was happening when you were that young? And and how did it change? Because I figure as as somebody who's that young, you don't have enough data points necessarily to really understand the impact.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's only so much kind of volunteer work that you can do and, and work that you can, expose your kids to. I mean, I was, I was young, and I, I had an understanding that there were people in our community who were homeless. And, you know, I, I certainly will never know what it means to be homeless. But I think that now, of course, that I'm much older, I have a much more nuanced perspective of, um, of social problems and of all of the, the complicated, web of, you know, problems that actually lead to homelessness, which is not a problem in, in, in itself, but a symptom of the problem. And I think also having a global perspective is something that has really shaped the way that I think. I mean, I... Grew up in a small town, but started traveling weirdly at a very young age. I was a, an exchange student when I was eleven to Japan. I don't know why my parents let me do that, <laughs> but, um, but it was it was the start of of a lot of worldwide travel and led me to do international human rights work when I was a young lawyer um, in, in in southern Africa and and I think gave me a much greater appreciation of kind of how our problems are are fit within the broader global economy so so certainly i mean the seeds were planted when i was very young but i've beca- have developed a much more sophisticated view on that because of experience and then also because of my research and my work mm-hmm.
0: um I'm curious across cultures, uh, you know, what you see as differences in social problems and how those social problems are addressed. Uh, because, you know, you go to a place like India. I, I mean, I don't think I ever heard of anybody mention the word homeless shelter to me in all my visits mm. to India. And the poverty there is is unlike anything I've ever seen. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's different everywhere. I mean, every culture has a different way of approaching uh, its social problems. Um, And, you know, in in many cases, community is the solution. And, you know, that, like, I'm sure I don't have experience um, working in India. But, you know, I know in many, many cultures that families take care of their elders. And, you know, that's not necessarily the case in the United States. In other places, government is the solution. So, um, you know, we know, it's funny, I had it a class once um, with a bunch of international students uh, at the University of San Francisco, where I was teaching at the time, and I was talking about nonprofit organizations. And this girl from Norway raised her hand and she said, "I don't really understand this problem with nonprofit organizations not having enough funding because in Norway our government just funds nonprofits, <laughs> so which is nice. Um, so, so that's you know another approach is to, to to take a government approach. And then you know in the United States we have have a very strong tradition of philanthropy, um, which has really stemmed from you know in the early days these Protestant values around work um, and 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 having a strong work ethic and you know giving back to those in the community who didn't have um, the, the the resources that they needed to survive. Mm-hmm. And thrive, and um, and 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 something that has developed in very interesting ways with, um, our legal structure and the, uh, the tax structure, and um, that allows nonprofits to operate in the way that they do, and allows people to uh, withhold money and get tax exemptions for supporting nonprofits, um, which you know promotes nonprofit work, um, here and. So as I think about how philanthropy is – situated in the United States, I mean, that is really relevant to the conversation of social entrepreneurship and how we can test new ideas because we have this philanthropic seed capital to support testing in small, nimble ways that the government cannot Um, because, you know, small and nimble is something that we would never use to describe the government. And yet these small nonprofits play a really, really critical role in working with, local communities, like the ones that I grew up in, um, to ensure that they are serving those local communities and figuring out the ideas that work to solve social problems so that we can scale those to a broader level. So I think that's one of the more exciting things about the structure that we have in place in the United States to solve social problems. And I think it leaves open a lot of opportunity to get creative about how we approach social change.
0: Mm. Well, let's do this. Walk me through how you get from the small town that you grew up in in uh, Napa to the work that you've ended up doing today. What have been sort of the significant inflection points and the trajectory of your career?
1: So I like to describe my career path as very windy and, and circuitous. I think that we all, when we're young, think that there's this like I don't know, mythical path that we're going to follow. And it's just going to be this straight line. I mean, it's one of the reasons why after college, I went to Berkeley, and then I went to Berkeley Law School. And, you know, one of the reasons why I went to law school is because it did feel like a very straight path to me. I'm, I'm someone who is probably risk averse and <laughs> didn't want to have to um, think too much about my path. And so uh, I went to work for a law firm after law school. And was billing hours by day and at night was co founding this small organization, Spark, that engages young professionals in new forms of philanthropy to support gender equality issues. And at the time, you know, Spark wasn't, it wasn't that I set out to start a nonprofit organization. I was starting to build roots in San Francisco and, you know, like I had. Been in this small town environment where I, I was involved in the community and giving back. I wanted to find ways to give back in San Francisco and was finding that actually, it was really hard as a young person to find ways that felt meaningful to me. Um, First of all, because I didn't have a ton of money to give at the time, I was paying back student loans. And so, you know, I would stretch myself to try and give $250 to an organization. uh, And, you know, they would pat me on the head, it felt like, and and say, thank you so much and take my money, but then, you know, never engage me again. And it didn't feel very satisfying as a donor. And it felt like a missed opportunity for the organization, too, because here I was, maybe I didn't have a lot of money to give, but I had a huge network of people who could give money um, that could collectively add up. And I had a lot of time and expertise and passion that the organization wasn't harnessing at all. <clears throat> And simultaneously, I was looking at the organizations that were focused on getting at young people like these, you know, benefit balls where you would have an event at night and then nobody would really talk about the cause. (laughs) It was um, maybe a brief programmatic afterthought. And then you'd have all these people, you'd get them excited about a cause and then then that would be it. There would be nothing after the fact. And so – When we started Spark, uh, my co-founders and I, a group of women I went to college with, thought, what if we could harness that energy and we could validate young people for what they can give back and provide channels for them to give back in meaningful ways by educating them about philanthropy and about gender equality issues, by giving them tools to be able to go into their workplace and advocate for uh, maternity leave, paternity leave, uh, that they could... um, learn about other organizations that were doing good work and help to fund them. And collectively, what if we could put our money together, all of our $250 stretch gifts to really make thousands of dollars to make an impact. And that's exactly what we've done. We are now a 15 year old organization that has a network of 10,000 millennial donors. And we've collectively given over $1.5 million dollars to small grassroots organizations over the past 15 years. And what's exciting about that is we've 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 done it through really small donation amounts. So, you know, $50, $100, $250, this is not a lot of money relative to uh, how much we've raised. And, and so I think what we're trying to do is to educate young people that you can give back starting at a young age and that you can contribute meaningfully to social change and that it is your obligation and your duty to do so. And philanthropy isn't something that just happens when you're much older. Mm hmm in your 60s and 70s. And what's exciting is that we've really been riding this trend. I mean, this is something that over the past 15 years since we started Spark in 2004, we've only seen more and more. I see this in my students at Stanford. Um, fast forward a few years back to my, my path, I, um, I ended up leaving the law firm and deciding to do this work full time. I came to Stanford to teach social entrepreneurship and have been over the past five years working on this book project to try and understand how social startups succeed. And at Stanford, what's so amazing is I see these students and they no longer see boundaries between, you know, for profit and uh, make money or nonprofit and go make a difference that there's everything in between. And that in fact, 85% of millennials will ask an organization what their social cause is or a company what their social cause is before they go and work for them. That's amazing. I mean, it's requiring companies like never before to... To set up social impact programs. And so we're seeing a real, a real shift in the way that our society approaches social change. And I think that, um, you know, Spark was on the forefront of it. And it's been exciting to see this philanthropic renaissance really blossom only more over the past decade.
0: Wow. All right. Tons of questions come from that. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the windy path because uh, I wrote a piece, I think, on Medium a while back about the things that people who had interesting careers had in common. And the one thing I think I had noticed between all the people I'd interviewed is that their path was never straight and narrow. Uh, yes. Almost always windy. Why do you think that? Um, and this will make actually a really nice segue into to a conversation about education. But why do you think that we're, you know, taught to believe that there is a straight and narrow path? Because if you think about the way that we're educated, uh, you know, I mean, I remember planning my life out at 18. I was like, OK, I'm going to go to Berkeley after Berkeley. I'm going to do this. I went to a career fair three weeks after school started and I changed mm-hmm. my major based on an adv- based on advice I got from a recruiter at Accenture. And to this day, I've never once applied for a job or even been interviewed for a job at Accenture.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, I think that the reason we think this way is because it did used to be this way. People used to go and work for companies for decades. I think about my mom. She was a school teacher from the time she graduated from St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. Um My dad was a community banker, and he went through business school uh, and was uh, started as a teller at Bank of America when he was in college and worked his way up to be president of the local community bank. I mean, these are the careers that we have as models from when we were growing up. And that's just changed and and in a very exciting way. I mean, like you said, um, you know, people don't, some people apply for jobs. that That still happens. (laughs) But so many people are entrepreneurial and able to create their own path. And as work is changing in the United States, we need to do a better job of preparing people to be on that path. And so as I think about how I educate my students, entrepreneurialism is critical to be able to think as problem solvers as opposed to thinking about things in terms of a path and, and, and sort of, you know, what, what, doing what they're told as opposed to thinking about how to solve actual problems.
0: Uh Um, You know, this is something I asked Tina Selig when we had her here as a guest. I'm curious um, what patterns you notice in your students when it comes to this, because, you know, one of the things she said is, you know, you have people who come in with their whole life planned out. And then she said, you get the exact opposite of that, that, which is people who have no clue what they're passionate about and they feel uh, (laughs) completely lost. So one, I'm curious what patterns that you've seen there. And two, um, you know, knowing this and the fact that you're educating students like this, why do you think this isn't becoming more and more prevalent in our education system and what do you think it's going to take for us to get there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely like see Like, see the whole spectrum. I mean, people who are just trying to figure out what they're passionate about, and um, and and there are classes now at Stanford where you can figure out w- what you're passionate about, and so that is something that is important for some people who are trying to figure it out. I think it's not just figuring out what you're passionate about, but figuring out what you're good at. I mean, this is something that really. Gave me the courage to leave my law firm job. Is I heard this talk by this guy, Chip Conley, who wrote this book called Peak. And he says, You could be using your skills really well. And be really excelling at your job. But if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're never going to achieve your peak. And then conversely, you could be really passionate about something, but really be terrible at <laughs> what you're doing and not really performing. And that's not going to be very satisfying either. And so in life, what we all should be seeking to do is to think about not only where we're passionate, but also what are we good at and what are our strengths. And and using those strengths to help do something that we're passionate about will be where we will achieve our peak impact in this world. So I think that's that's a nice framing that I I think about often and was really influential to me. Um, you know, in terms of how we educate students, and something that has really struck me recently is. You know, we've all watched these students in Parkland, Florida, get on CNN and, you know, be so incredibly impressive in advocating for gun control in the aftermath of the shooting that happened at the Stoneman Douglas High School. And, you know, of course, all of us are watching these kids in awe on CNN. I've had media training and I watch them and think, oh, my goodness, there would be I, I couldn't be as eloquent or as as savvy as they uh, as they have been um you know these are high school students it's hard hard to remember that, and I recently found out an interesting story, which is that Broward County has one of the best debate teams in the country, and that these kids are taught in the Broward County schools to speak extemporaneously about issues, um, advocacy, social causes, from the time they are in elementary school. And so these kids uh, who are appearing on CNN have been on debate teams. And in fact, last year, their debate was on gun control. And I think this is a really interesting story because I think it shows that the fact that these kids have been so successful in really turning the tide on gun control, a lot of people saying that are saying this feels different. We are seeing companies um, that are coming down on assault weapons, that are um, you know coming down on the NRA. So it is different. We're seeing results um, in a way that we we haven't before. And what's amazing about this story is it's not a coincidence that these kids have been prepared for this moment. And so as I think about how can we transform the education system so that we can um, prepare all kids for the moment of crisis that they might face, because the social problems that we're facing whether it's climate change whether it's you know racial injustices or increasing gaps between the rich and the poor in our society and around the world these young people have to be prepared to tackle those issues and we have to be teaching them skills like problem solving like extemporaneous speaking and advocacy like empathy and, and, and understanding um, if we want them to be successful in this new world.
0: Mm-hmm. Um you know, in the opposite of the spectrum, I mean, with older people, you see almost a level of apathy when it comes to social change, or not just apathy, but rage and an unwillingness to do anything about it. And I'm curious, mm. um, you know, what your perspective is on that. I mean, because all <laughs> I see are a lot of mad people yelling on the news often.
1: It's funny that you say that, because I've had, I have a, a dear mentor, uh, Kavita Ramdas, who founded the Global Fund for, or was the CEO of the Global Fund for Women for many years. And, um, and she is... Yeah, a baby boomer, and I've had long conversations with her uh, at on the Stanford campus about how the younger generation is just so apathetic, (laughs) and how how we we don't really do anything. And I mean, I think you know a lot of those, those those conversations predate the Women's March. I think in a way, the Women's March and you know the activism that we've seen in the aftermath of the election. Um, of Donald Trump has been maybe the the coming of age for young people and, you know, coming to the streets is is a sign that things are different. Um, But my argument to her was always that I think different generations think about their activism in different ways. So, of course, young people might be really active on Twitter and Uh Facebook and, you know, having conversations about issues that they care about. Um, and you know, for the older generation, it might be getting into the streets and, you know, so when they don't see young people in the streets, they wonder if we really care. And so I think that it's, it's all of those things, but I think in all cases, I think what we really need to start thinking about as a society is how do we turn this, activism and passion into real action and i think those parkland students are a great example is they they are they have figured out some strategies for what they want to advocate for and are and are working hard to um to try and get those policies into place Uh
2: hi
0: you know, one of the the sort of my sort of worst case scenario when it comes to activism is that this anger turns into basically um, just you know civil unrest. Like I'm always thinking of like, okay, this is the worst case scenario, but it seems in so many ways that we could end up there. And, and I'm curious how you draw that line between taking action on something and and causing it to you know lead to civil unrest in society.
1: Hmm. Well, like, I mean, mass in- hysteria. Yeah. Well, in the work that I've done around the world, I mean, where I've seen civil unrest happen is, I mean, two situations. One is when there is this increasing gap between the rich and the poor, which sadly we're seeing in the United States like never before. The Gini coefficient, which is the economic indicator of the gap between the rich and the poor in any given place, is, I've heard, the highest in San Francisco. Uh, as as ever before and in in it's reaching a level of like developing countries that we think of where you know like brazil and mm-hmm. you know other places that have a really really high genie coefficient um and so i think that's a really problematic sign and you know i think another area where we often see civil unrest globally is when there's a really high unemployment rate. And that's something that we're seeing amongst young people as well, which is really problematic as, um, you know, it's harder for young people to get jobs, particularly in certain areas in the country. And so if we don't figure out ways to employ people and give them economic purpose, then we're going to be in big trouble as a country.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit and let's actually start getting into this whole idea of social startup success. Do you think you could kind of walk us through a framework for what causes social startups to succeed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, for the last five years, have been working on this research project to try and understand why some organizations succeed and scale and others don't. So I'll tell you a story of an organization that really embodies the reason why I wrote this work. This book, uh, Rob Gittin, is was a Stanford student, and like my Stanford students, he chose his class schedule based on the classes that met after 2 p.m. because he really liked to sleep in. And so he stumbled into this class one day, homelessness in America, and he fell in love. He was doing volunteer work as a part of the the class and he was volunteering with homeless youth in San Jose, and he was particularly passionate about the 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 organizations, or sorry, he was particularly passionate about the children who were really hard to reach, that the, the the organizations were having a hard time getting through to. These were the kids that had been let down at every stage in their lives by the juvenile justice system, by the foster care system, by their families, by the government. And Rob had this incredible gift of of getting through to them. And so he loved hanging out with these homeless kids so much that when he graduated from college, he wanted to go Hang out with them more, and so he started his organization at the Crossroads, really as a self-employment plan to keep doing this work that he loved, um, and to to help as many kids as he possibly could. So he was doing outreach at on the streets of the Tenderloin from seven p.m. to seven a.m. every every morning, and he was helping kids one by one by one, and he realized that. One by one by one wasn't going to get him very far, that if he really wanted to make a difference in in the homelessness problem in San Francisco, he was going to have to start a much bigger organization and he was going to have to really build a movement. And the problem is that Rob was 22 and he had never gotten a job before, been hired before, let alone, you know, hired someone himself. And he had no connections to high net worth individuals to raise the millions of dollars that he needed to raise, to to grow this organization. And on and on and on. Rob's story is the story of so many young people who start organizations and realize very quickly that passion and charisma is only going to get them so far. And you know, this was the story that I knew something about myself because it was the story that we we found when we started Spark. We were young and passionate and had all of these ideas and we had so much buzz and we had lines around the block for our events and we were doubling our revenue every few months, but the problem is that we hit a wall and we couldn't get the capital that we needed to grow and so fast forward when i was at stanford and doing research and i started becoming really curious about this question why is it that some organizations succeed in scale while others don't and i i learned in my research that this funding wall is a real thing that two-thirds of nonprofits are five hundred thousand dollars and below in revenue um and that many of them would like to grow but are on this treadmill just trying to make payroll every month when they should be focusing on the problems that they're trying to solve. So I went out and I surveyed hundreds of social entrepreneurs and I sat down with 100 nonprofit leaders and their staff and their beneficiaries and their <laughs> funders, all to get to the bottom of this question of why certain organizations succeed. And I kept waiting in my conversations for people to say, oh, it's just charisma or a good idea or, you know, something like that that gets people ahead. But nobody said that. And it's not to say that charisma and passion and, you know, brilliant ideas aren't important. But what was so interesting to me about all of my research is that really it came down to this fundamental set of skills uh, that helped organizations lay the foundation for success. So testing and innovation, measuring impact, fundraising, experimentation, and developing a funding model to help an organization grow, collective leadership uh, and storytelling. And so those are the five those are the five strategies that I talk about in the book. And what's so exciting to me is that, these strategies are teachable. So getting back to our conversation about education is we should be teaching these strategies at the university level, the high school level very early on, so that all of us who care about social causes can be better advocates for the causes that we care about. Because if you want to make a difference in this world, you have to understand how nonprofits work so that you can be supportive of them.
0: So can you go into the five areas in a bit more detail in each one, like how they could be applied to our lives and our businesses? Um, because it seems to me that, you know, what you're talking about doesn't necessarily just apply to nonprofits, but also for-profit enterprises with social causes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a huge fan. There's, there's a big movement right now to, to apply business principles to the nonprofit sector. I think that, you know, no one I know has been more uh, efficient than nonprofit leaders who are trying to run their organizations on a shoestring budget. And so um, <clears throat> I think that nonprofits can really add a lot of value to for-profits too. I'm, that's not my fight to <laughs> – but, um, but I do think since you've said it, I do think that um, that there's a huge amount that, non- that for-profits can learn from nonprofits. So, um, yeah, I'll go through each one of them. So, so testing and innovation and – really looking at whether there are ways to uh, test ideas and figure out whether you're having an impact and, and what is working and what is not before you go out and starting organization or company. And this is really critical because these are the organizations that are able to go out and with data points to funders. And also that are able to um, make a stand at the right time. It's really hard once you put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we're doing, to go back and, as they say in the Silicon Valley, pivot and you know take a new stance. There's a lot... Less forgiveness for that in the nonprofit sector. And so taking that time to be really, really innovative in the start is critical, not only to getting the capital that you need to scale and, and developing the model early on, but also so that you can develop a culture of innovation and testing as you grow and a comfort with failure and figuring out what not only what is working, but what isn't working. And so the, the example I love uh, to talk about that really exemplifies this is Beth Schmidt founded this organization, Wishbone, which is a crowdfunding site for high school students to follow their passions. When she started the organization, um, it wasn't really about like developing this really comprehensive crowdfunding platform. It was about... Photocopying some papers that her high school students had written when she was a teacher in Los Angeles in a low income school and mailing those to her family and seeing, just testing it out and seeing, what if I sent these around? Do you think people would send money so that I could actually send these kids off to follow their passions in the summer? And she got back from the letters thousands of dollars that did enable her to send kids off to summer camp and through that process she was able to you know figure out things that were working and things that weren't like she figured out she shouldn't be paying full ride for these kids so that they could um, go during the summer that she should be getting scholarships and so she developed different tracks for the kids all these little tweaks that helped her once she started the organization to get off on the right foot. The second strategy I talk about is measuring impact. And the organizations that tended to scale more quickly said they began measuring their impact from day one. And I thought that this made sense because these were the organizations that were going out and getting funded because they had data to show for it. But when I talked with the leaders, it wasn't about getting funded at all. But the data was really about not just proving that what they were doing was working, but improving. And again, looking at not only where they were succeeding, but also where they were failing so that they could be more impactful. And this is really hard when you're just starting out because you might not have data to show that what you're doing is working. You might not know for a few years whether what you're doing is working. But this doesn't mean that you can't have proxies to see whether you're on track. So, for example, Braven is an organization that funds low-income Uh, College students to help support their work so that they can be, uh, so that they can graduate and and get jobs at faster rates. These college kids were freshmen when they started in the program, so they weren't going to know whether they were going to actually have an impact until they. Graduated four years later, but they started tracking things like attendance to see if they were on track towards graduating, or whether the mentors would recommend them as a as a way to see whether they were on track towards actually getting jobs. And this, when I went out and talked with Braven's funders, was critical to show that they were on track towards achieving some of that early impact. Mm. The third strategy is fundraising experimentation, and this is really important because organizations cannot find this one-size-fits-all funding model, that every organization has to go out and figure out what their individual strategy is going to be that is going to match both where they can access capital as well as what's going to uh, fit their mission. And so organizations need to test a combination of both earned and philanthropic income to get there. Uh, An organization that did this well is Hot Bread Kitchen in Harlem, New York, which helps low-income women to get into jobs in the food industry. And so when Jessamyn Rodriguez started the organization, she thought, okay, we're going to be 100% sustainable on on earned income. We're going to be a business that is supporting our nonprofit work by selling sales from the bread. So they did that. They sold bread in a cafe that they had at the organization. They sold wholesale to JetBlue and to Whole Foods and other retail outlets, and they had a small incubator program where they charged rent to small business owners to go out and make food for local markets. And so all of this revenue was really critical to helping to support the training program that they had. But she realized that she was actually selling her vision short by not accepting philanthropic dollars, that philanthropic dollars were really important to fill the gap where the Earn income wasn't necessarily um, enough to do things like provide childcare um, or keep the women in the program longer than it might be profitable. And so, all these little um, additions to the program that might not be the profitable thing to do, but that were the right thing to do. For the women, were ultimately made possible by philanthropic dollars. And so now her model is a model of 65% earned income and 35% philanthropic dollars. So every organization needs to do that kind of testing to figure out the funding model that's right for them. The fourth strategy is collective leadership and building flat organizations that have senior leadership teams and 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 boards that are um, hierarchical in that in that regard but also that empower leaders and staff at every single level within the organization and the example that I think really illustrates this well is Kiva which is a, a huge organization now a crowdfunding platform for micro enterprises around the world. And when Kiva started, they were uh, lucky enough to get on the Oprah show. Very early on, they were featured in Bill Clinton's book, Giving. And overnight after being on the Oprah show, they raised $11 million. And so, I mean, I, I joke that that Oprah is the, the key to social startup success. <laughs> if, you get on, if you get on Oprah, you're set. Um, but actually, you know, it, 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 it sounds crazy. It broke their servers. And all of a sudden, they had $11 million that they had to distribute. And they didn't have a team in place to do that. And so from the very beginning, they had to rely on volunteers. And this was really critical to, um, helping them do the work that they needed, but they had to figure out ways to, uh, to manage all of these different people. Cause they have a hundred staff and 500 volunteers now at any given time. And so they do things like they have horizontal feedback loops to help people learn from each other. They create metrics uh, through their staff. They allow their staff to create their own metrics of success. And this empowers staff and allows them to see exactly where their work is contributing to the broader mission of the organization. And so little strategies like that helped them maximize the potential of Kiva by um, really flattening out the leadership structure. And then finally, storytelling. and. You know, I think we all have this tendency to hear a great TED talk or political speech and think, wow, that person is just a natural. But when I went out and talked with some of the best storytellers that I know, they really focus on it and make it a priority and they practice it. My friend Nadine Bercaris, who runs the Center for Youth Wellness, an organization that focuses on toxic stress, she realized that if she was going to change the conversation about adverse childhood experiences in this country, she was going to have to change the conversation at a national level. And she was going to have to have something big. So she was able to get a Ted talk and she practiced that Ted talk for six months before she gave it. And she she said that by the time she gave it, her husband literally could have given it for her because she had given it so many times in their house. And so that, that's the kind of level of practice that it takes to become a good public speaker, to become a good messenger of your story. And the best organizations prioritize it, not just for the executive directors, but for every staff person within the organization. They'll have things like TED Talk Tuesdays where people will study different, uh, different speakers or there's a great uh, organization, IDEO.org, which has this thing called Storytelling Roulette where they spin the wheel and then a staff member is put on the spot to have to tell the story right away. And that is important to them because they're outselling their product. And if they realize that every person within the organization can be a brand ambassador and that they have to prepare them to be able to tell the story. So those are the five strategies. And uh, and, and and again, I think what's so exciting is that any organization, no matter how big or small, can implement these strategies. They are not strategies that require millions and millions of dollars or even thousands of thousands of dollars. And so my hope is that readers will come away from social startup success with a much better understanding of not only how organizations work, but how we can all do a better job of of supporting the organizations that we care about.
0: Hey, it's Srini. And I just want to say thanks for listening. If you're finding our show inspiring or thought provoking, the biggest thing that you can do to support us is to share the show with someone else who you think would find these conversations valuable. And with most podcast apps, you can just send a link via text. Thanks again for listening to the show. Wow. So I have, I have two last questions for you. Um, I'd imagine as, as somebody who's done nonprofit work, you've been exposed to people with a significant amount of wealth. Uh, and I, I'm curious, um, having you know, been on, on this side of the equation, what your own perspective on money and wealth is?
1: money and wealth, in what regard?
0: Well, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about the wealth gap, but how do you see money? I mean, what's the story that you tell yourself about money? Because, you know, I, I think something that probably, uh, the most striking thing I ever heard about money was something Seth Godin said. He said, money is a story. He said, and it's a story for investment bankers who make $3 a day and a story for peasants who make $3 a second. Or a uh, $3, uh, or investment oh, bankers who make $3 <laughs> a second. Sorry, I had it the back had backwards.
1: Yeah, I mean... I think in the nonprofit sector that there is a power dynamic that money sets up, which I think creates a false dichotomy that is very problematic for our sector. So in the nonprofit world, we have nonprofits who are asking wealthy people for money to fund the causes that they care about, and the nonprofit leaders are doing the work. That is an equal equation, right? Right. Everybody brings something to the table. The funders bring money and the nonprofit leaders bring the expertise, the connection to the communities. But it's not an equal partnership that money equals power and that the people, the funders who have the money have power over nonprofits um, in ways that isn't really the best way always to solve social problems. So the funders are not the beneficiaries. In, in in the business world, you have a customer and you have a business. If the customer likes the products that the business is selling, they buy them and the business grows. If they don't like them, they don't buy them and the business goes out of business. <clears throat> in the nonprofit sector, you have beneficiaries receiving services, but you have funders, on the other hand, paying for those services. And they don't necessarily have a very close perspective of whether those services are actually having an impact on people's lives. Mm. And so I think this is something that we have to start by naming that, you know, like just because Bill Gates gets on the treadmill one day and this, here's a 60 minute story about, you know, some school that is doing a really innovative program and decides to fund it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best Way to use money in the sector, um, and so and, and yet that's that's kind of the way that philanthropy happens and so I think we need to think about ways to democratize philanthropy um, and create accountability in ways that that actually distributes money and creates the partnerships that are going to be effective to make the most impact. Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> Wow. Um, Well, this has been truly amazing. Uh, I I can see why Lisa referred you. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Mm. Passion. Everybody's got to follow their passion. And uh, if you truly know what your passion is and and are able to follow it, then that's when you're going to maximize your impact and make you unmistakable.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, oh, one last question. Sorry. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Mm, my website is KathleenJanice.com and you can buy social startup success at your favorite online or bookstore retailer.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands.
0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com/four keys. Use the number four: K-E-Y-s. That's unmistakablecreative.com/4 keys, and download your free copy.